in the land of 10,000 lakes, a remarkable movement was born. Welcome to Hometown Hero Outdoors. We are dedicated to honoring our military service members, veterans, and first responders by providing them with unforgettable outdoor recreational opportunities. We believe those who have served and sacrificed so much for our country and communities deserve a chance to reclaim their spirit and find healing in the great outdoors. This is Hometown Hero Outdoors. Welcome to the Hometown Hero Outdoors podcast. Here is your host, Chris Tatro. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to this week's Hometown Hero Outdoor Podcast. I'm Phil Ewert, media producer for HHO, filling in the host chair for this week's podcast. I'm joined this week by our special guest, Jason Stone, retired Navy chief, as well as one of our board members for Hometown Hero Outdoors, Andy Graff. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us tonight, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to read through uh, some of Jason's bio to get us started tonight. Uh, it's There's a lot going on here. This guy's lived a full life. Um, and so I'll just get to reading it. Jason is a retired Navy chief with 20 years, 10 months, and 20 days of submarine service under his belt. He worked in commercial nuclear power since 2009, starting off as an instructor at the Monticello Nuclear Plant in Mon Minnesota, and is now in Washington State, where he works in the initial license class supervisor as, excuse me, the initial class supervisor at the Columbia Generating Station. He also teaches th thermodynamic courses as an adjunct instructor at the local college. Jason has his Bachelor of Science in Nuclear Engineering Technology and a Master's of English and Creative Writing. He has a passion for learning and teaching. He got his general class amateur radio license in 2007, his pilot license in January 2008. He loves to write stories, make leather bags and wallets, builds fishing poles, helps people learn how to shoot better, and loves board games. I don't know how you have time, uh, to be honest. Um, recently, uh, though, Jason started his own podcast called Prostate Cancer to Road to Recovery, documenting his journey with recent stage four advanced prostate cancer diagnosis. So welcome, Jason. Uh, very happy to have you on the Hometown Hero Outdoors podcast and to get a little bit of your story. Um, I met Jason, uh, I want to say about 2011 when we used to be next door neighbors, uh, Jason and I lived uh, next door to each other in Big Lake, Minnesota. Over the years, we went shooting together, uh, spent a few nights around the bonfire, uh, enjoying some uh, cigars, maybe even a little scotch now and then. Jason, uh, moved from Minnesota in 2018. We've stayed in contact. So, uh, welcome Jason. I'd like to start. Uh, us out tonight, uh, having you tell us about your military service, why you chose uh, chose to join the military, specifically the Navy, and then walk us through your military career, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Phil. Uh, I'd love to. The I always wanted to fly, and so uh, and I had a girlfriend in high school. I grew up in Pocatello, Idaho. I went to Pokey High School for anybody in Idaho watching, and I wanted to join the Air Force. And so that's all I, I just knew my entire life. That's what I was going to do. I was going to join the Air Force and fly. And I remember going to the recruiting office there at the, the mall in Pocatello and the, the uh, Air Force office was closed. And I was walking back down the hall and this guy in a white uniform, with a big smile on his face. Said, How can I help you? So I don't think you can. I said, I'm trying to join the Air Force. And he said, uh, well, why do you want to join the Air Force? I said, well, I want to fly. He goes, well, why would you want to join the Air Force? I got really confused at that point. I was 17 years old. Uh, he started telling me stuff about, well, the Navy has better pilots. Navy has more planes and this and that. And, and then he had me take this test. And then he had me take another test. The next thing I knew, I joined to go submarines. I'm not quite sure how that happened. A little bit opposite there, you know, above water, <laughs> right? below water. Yeah. Well, you've had your own experience with recruiters, too. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I know they can swindle you pretty good. Yep. Uh, you Sometimes you don't exactly know what you're getting in for. That's kind of how I started off. Ne- didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do uh, other than fly. And then once my career started in the Navy, I just kind of went, went along for the ride. They started saying stuff like, well, in order to fly, you got to be an officer. And in order to be an officer, there's better programs to be an officer. And so I kind of bit the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. Um, Oddly enough, I later in my career ended up going to be a recruiter. Uh, I tried not to be that guy. So (laughs) (laughs) what was your rate in the Navy? What what job did you choose? I was a nuclear machinist mate. So I was the back aft. Uh, on the on the nuke subs. Sure. Yep. It was a it was a fun ride. I had uh, I had a good time doing that. I did uh, six and a half years on my first submarine, the USS Ohio. I did uh, three years of recruiting duty down in San Diego, and then I went up to um, went out to Hawaii, and I spent the rest of my career in Hawaii, and that was awesome. Wow. I did back to back sea tours on with back to back Westpacs. Uh, I started off on the USS Tucson, and then I went to the USS Chicago. I loved being at sea. I loved being on the submarine. I loved being out there fixing stuff. I loved the mission. Um, and so I, I really got to do six years straight of sea duty. And then I went to the Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard there in Hawaii, and I was able to to dial it down a little bit. I was a chief by that point, and I was able to kind of coast a little bit better. Uh, teach a couple of my first classes to how to run the shop. I ran nuclear test equipment there in Hawaii and let them kind of take things. And I got to go do other things, messed around in the, in the chief's mess and uh, went and got my pilot license. That was a, that was a bucket list item for my whole life. And I was like, uh, I'm not leaving Hawaii until I do that. So yeah, I had a good time. I got involved in uh, emergency amateur radio club. So EARC out in Hawaii. Uh, that was a lot of fun. It was really interesting getting involved and participating in drills with the community, uh, with uh, setting up the Oahu Races, R-A-C-E-S, uh, getting involved in emergency communications, having a ham radio set up. Um, and yeah, that was a lot of fun. I had a lot, I had a good time in Hawaii. If they had a commercial nuclear reactor, I'd live there forever. <laughs> yeah i i've i've been to hawaii a couple times just mostly just uh, tourism but uh yeah it's 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 a nice place i knew a bunch of sailors that were living and stationed out there so because nick tam's pack which i'm sure you've heard about yeah. um that's naval communications uh telework area master station if i believe it's been a few years um nick okay. tam's pack in pacific so i i did uh, i did voice and data comms on my ship uh my job was in it but i was a radio man Radio. I worked in the radio shack. So yeah, when you talk about, um, you know, the ham radios and stuff, it's kind of up my alley. It's kind of, I got a little experience in that, but, oh, um, no. so yeah, I, um, I totally get it. Yeah. Uh, Nick Tam's pack there in, in uh, Hawaii is a very big station for guys with my rate. So I know a lot of friends that went there and loved it. So did you get your, uh, radio license outside? I didn't. And it's funny you say that. So I had a, a family member that was a, a a chief of the Navy as well. And he has his license and he's out um, uh, near Virginia. And he always is like, you got to get it. You could get it. And I was like, <laughs> I probably could. Cause he wants to communicate with me. He's always showing me his setups and his antennas and all this stuff. So I, I totally respect it, but um, you know, I just unfortunately don't have enough time to, hey, to do that. My, but my motto it. is you can never have too many hobbies. Exactly. Exactly. So Jason, I want to reel you back just a little bit uh, for some of our listeners who, um, like myself, are not super familiar with the Navy. You mentioned, I think, three different subs that you were on. What was the difference between those subs, or was that were they all very similar? Uh, besides being nuclear, uh, you know, was there, I mean, size difference, capacity, uh, mission style? I mean. What can you tell us about the difference in the ships? Yes, all the difference. (laughs) (laughs) The difference is about two hundred feet in length and uh, ten feet in diameter. (laughs) So the first boat I was on, the Ohio, up out of Bangor, Washington, was a missile boat, and that was a ballistic missile submarine. They carried twenty-four ICBMs, and we had uh, we had about a 
dozen, over a dozen of those boats on the east and west coast total at the time, dozen and a half. And uh, our goal was to go out, submerge, and hide from the world for two to three months at a time. And so it was a pretty slow, easygoing mission. We just go out, we submerge. It was a big old heavy boat and uh, 18,000 tons submerged displacement. And it just would go out and we'd uh, train and run drills. And and uh, yeah, it was a pretty easy life. They call it the Hotel of Submarines. Uh, what's interesting about those with 24 ICBMs, each ICBM has multiple warheads on it. And so if that submarine, that one single submarine, went out in the middle of the ocean, surfaced, and declared itself its own country, it would be the third most, the third most powerful nuclear-armed country in the world. Wow. Just one of those. So only, only behind the United States and the Soviet Union. <laughs> That's a little crazy. It is, right? And to have so, uh, more than a dozen of those running around. So obviously... Nuclear is actually very safe. It's very stable until it is set off. And that's also the same for power plants. They're incredibly safe until there's until they're not that, until they're <laughs> not, you know, accurate. Um, and uh, but did that ever cross your mind that you're basically, you know, sleeping feet away from 12 Nagasaki sized or larger bombs? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it does at first, but the whole trick to being in the Navy out to sea is stay busy. You stay yeah. busy and you're trying to find something to do all the time. And there's, if you have any downtime, you're, you're feeling it on your own. I think that's kind of where my drive to constantly be doing something uh, comes from. If, if I'm not busy in training, if I'm not cleaning, if I'm not fixing a valve, if I'm not troubleshooting some weird noise in a turbine generator, then uh, I'm going to be reading, I'm going to be doing laundry, I'm going to be doing something. I'm going to be doing, and so that, and on a submarine, you get, you're on a different schedule because we don't have the benefit of sunlight, daylight, right? So hmm. that's what governs your sleep time on uh, target sailors, no offense. <laughs> And on, you know, as, as a regular human being right now on land, that's what our day is based on. On a submarine, it's not. So are your bodies naturally acclimate with lack of sunlight to about an 18-hour day. Hmm. So we would spend six hours on watch uh, doing, our, doing our job, taking logs, running equipment. Then we'd spend six hours after watch doing either training or after watch cleanup or maintenance or something like that. And then as long as there wasn't something else going on, we got six hours to ourselves to do uh, laundry or shower, eat, stuff like that. And so you generally get about four hours of sleep, three and a half, four hours of sleep every eight out of every 18 hour rotation. And you get more. It feels like more days of the week go by. Uh, so it's it's kind of weird when you're underwater and deprived of sunlight. Yeah. So, Andy. What, how does that compare to being on a on a carrier? I mean, so, obviously you you see the sunlight, but I mean, does well, your work shift similar? Yeah. Um, so what, what we did? So I, I worked nights. I was a night supervisor. I was the communication watch officer, and basically our job, like we worked twelve hour shifts, but then we'd have overlap. And then when I was on watch, I was on watch twelve hours. I didn't get the the free time. Oh. I didn't get the extra time. For me, it was I was the CWO. Um, so I was in charge of all voice and data comms coming on often on the ship. So it was a big job. Um, you know, captain had a direct line to our shop. If there was ever an issue, he'd call us directly. Cause you know, obviously every, everything comes out of our ship. So we had an outage. It was a big deal. Um, but we would basically work, I'd work, I think it was like 6 PM to 6 AM. That was my shift every day, but that was cause I was stationed over in Japan and that, that area that was pretty much daytime in the United States. And then after that, we'd have, uh, cleaning stations, which would be, we do the whole ship would shut down operations for an hour, unless we're doing real world stuff. And we would clean. They're called Exo's happy hour, the whole ship. The, so it's 5,000 sailors on a ship, 5,000 oh, wow. people cleaning. And you know what? It does get dirty. You wouldn't think it does. It sure does. So we do that. Um, and then if we had a general quarters or drill training a, as a team, it would go basically from like seven to 10, 11, so now it's almost noon and you're, you're ready. You're trying to get some food. Then you got, I got to hit the rack and go right back at it. So, and especially with my job, we had some 
a lot of stuff we had to do before work as far as like uh, taking over the watch. Cause we do 12 hour watch rotations. Sure. Um, but yeah, so I would say we were right about that 16 hour day schedule. Um, they try to give us eight hours off, but it never, never really accumulated. But when I worked nights, I, I like you never saw the daylight. I worked in a space, there's no windows. Um, we were a TPI space, which means two person integrity. So, I mean, it it wasn't free in and out. It was very, who's coming in here. We have an authorized list of who could be in the space. So there's no windows, there's no open doors, nothing. So very well secured. I, once I sat down, I pretty much didn't leave for the day unless I had to make a quick head call. Um, so it was kind of tough. You know, I had a, I always like after my third deployment, I figured out all my snacks I needed to make it through because, you know, otherwise I'm sending people down to the ship store because the carrier did have the benefit of uh, Raz's, which is replenishment at sea. We did have a ship store that was operational, but um, unlike, you know, you sub guys, you get down there and you may not get a Raz for a minute. So I, I give you respect there. No, I didn't serve in the military. I was in law enforcement um, and I, I worked overnight. So I, I know what that's like. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I don't think I would have been cut out for being above or below the water other than when I take my pontoon out fishing. So uh, <laughs> so I want to change gears here a little bit. And uh, Jason, you, uh, you started after your service, you went and started working in nuke plants. How yeah. did that come about? Um, well, uh, once again, I ended up doing something I didn't want to do. Uh, I was going to be an operator out in Idaho. And I interviewed for a job. It was a perfect job. I wanted to get back home. And uh, it, they said, yeah, we're going to send you an offer letter. It might take a couple of weeks. HR is doing some uh, uh, restructuring. I was like, okay, awesome. They said, we want to hire you. All right, perfect. This is 2009. You know, the, the, the whole situation with getting jobs and stuff was pretty rough at that time. Uh, money and housing crisis and all that. So I was excited that I was going to come out of the Navy at that time with something. <laughs> and a couple of weeks went by and I called them back, didn't have an offer. And they said, oh, just give it a couple more weeks. And this turned, this turned into a thing. And so a couple months went by and I called a recruiter and I said, hey, I'm starting to get nervous. I'm getting cold feet. I says, I want to be an operator. I don't necessarily have to be around nuclear power. I'm just looking for a job where I'm turning wrenches, because that's what I want to do. And she said, well, I've got this instructor job in Minnesota. I said, there's two things wrong with that. And uh, she said, well, call me back next week. And uh, I called her back, and then that turned into a thing. And so this went on. We tag-teamed for a few weeks. And then I finally said, hey, how big of a jerk would I be if I went and did this interview at this place I don't want to live to doing a job I don't want to do? And she says, no, if this is the only, uh, if you haven't had any job interviews, you should be doing this. You need the experience. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Are they paying? And then she said, yeah, they'll fly you from Hawaii out to Minnesota. And I was like, heck yeah. So I flew out and uh, I should have seen, I should have thought about this, right? Uh, I'm a, uh, I am didn't realize at the time how I should be prepared, How what I should do to be prepared for this interview for an instructor job. So I'm sitting there, we're waiting on uh, one of the supervisors to come in, and the manager is uh, chatting with me, and he says, well, what are you going to present today? I said, about what? <laughs> he said, well, I mean, you're hiring for an instructor job. What are you going to teach us? Well, what do you want to know? <laughs> Completely not prepared, right? Oh boy. And he sat back, crossed his arms, started uh, saying things like, well, you're not ready for this, you know, blah, blah, blah. At that moment, I started fighting for a job I didn't want in a place I didn't want to live. I'm like, holy crap, I failed this job interview and it hasn't even started. And so I started asking some questions and he was very much like, what? I was like, what does it have to be about? Does it have to be technical? Does it have to be nuclear? Do I need a PowerPoint? And he just kept not answering them and saying, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this, which makes sense, except that I had nothing to lose. So I was going to do it. It didn't matter. I was going to do this interview. And so he finally gave in. There was a whiteboard behind me in his office. I said, as long as I can just use the whiteboard and start talking, I'm ready to go. And he's like, okay. He says, I'm not going to give you another chance. This is it. I said, all right. So I had just gotten my pilot license a year before. 
And so I had a bunch of stuff fresh in my head still. And I knew uh, that I was talking to to nuclear people. And so people that had degrees, engineering degrees even. And so I didn't want to hit the surface stuff, the stuff that you might learn, pick up in high school or something. So I went for all the little nuggets of random things. Why is why is the engine offset so many degrees? Why, how does, you know, how does the propeller rotation direction impact uh, all this stuff? And what is ground effect and all these different little things? And so I started talking. I was drawing diagrams on the board behind me and talking through stuff. And they started asking questions. And all I had to do was present for 20 minutes so they could see whether or not I could teach. And I've never taught. This is this is my first time really teaching, right? Because I was a I was a, a knuckle dragger, you know. I was turning wrenches in the engine room, yeah. and uh, <laughs> he's he's up there. They're asking me questions, and they're asking me questions. And finally, he goes. He looked at his watch, and he said, "Holy crap!" He says, "We have to stop the interview." I panicked, and he looked at the other guy, and said, "Well, we should." We we missed the other interview. So apparently they were supposed to, they were they missed an interview because I was teaching and they just got sucked right up into it. So we went for two and a half hours. <laughs> when <laughs> it was supposed to be twenty minutes? It was twenty minutes. 20? Oh geez. We oh, went that's... two and a half hours. That's crazy. And, and uh we got done with the interview and he's like, Well, we're gonna send you an offer later. I'm, in my head, I'm like, yeah, okay, I know how this goes. And uh, he said, you know, Hawaii is a big place. Uh, so I know, you know everybody gets asked if you're out in Hawaii, oh, do you know so-and-so, right? And it's an island with so many tens of thousands, millions of people. And he says, but I'm going to ask, do you remember, Do you know a sailor? Because we hired a guy a, a year ago by this name. And I was like, truck? And I heard around the corner, truck piped up and said, stone? <laughs> so he came out, we hugged. I had no idea he was working there. And then I heard another guy, he said, Mike, you know, another guy was working there. And another guy I knew from the Navy was working there. I'm like, huh, interesting. And then we're walking to go to lunch and I hear a voice uh, from 20 years before uh, pulled right out of the old memory banks. I hear this voice. I'm like, that's not just like my A school uh, class leader from back in 1989, <laughs> 20 years ago. And they're like, well, it can't be. I'm like, well, is it, unless it's, a, you know, this guy's name. I'm not throwing names out here. I don't know if I should or shouldn't. But it's this guy's name. And I'm like, and they're like, well, that's our ops director. I'm like, oh, yeah, I knew him. <laughs> and so I suddenly all these people I knew. And, uh, yeah, so I, I thought about it. I went home uh, and made a couple calls and decided, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. It was six months without an offer letter from Idaho. It had gone sure. six months now. So I finally just took the hint and said, I guess I'm not supposed to be doing that. I'm supposed to move to Big Lake, Minnesota. <laughs> and be Phil's neighbor. <laughs> that, you know what? That's what's so funny about that story. Because I obviously, as long as I've known you, I haven't heard that entire story. Yep. Is that I love the part where you said you were fighting for a job you didn't want in a place you didn't want to move. And then you yep. ended up, you ended up winning the job. That's great. Yep. So, and obviously because you taught and you are an instructor, uh, I assume that's how you then transitioned into teaching college classes. Yeah. I got out here and now I was, uh, I went from teaching out there in Minnesota to teaching out here and they have this, um, uh, like a pipeline program at the community college at the Columbia Basin College here, a nuclear technology pipeline for the community college. So kids coming out of high school can join in on these, um, take these classes and learn about the nuclear power plant. They can learn about advanced thermodynamics, uh, facility components, all these different things. And they're taught by people that work in the industry. The Hanford Reservation out here is a huge area. Right, we have uh, PNNL labs. We have uh, that the what they call the tank farms. We've got the VIT plant. We've got the where I work, the Columbia Generating Station nuclear power plant. Uh, there was the old um, test reactor that was out here. There's all kinds of stuff, and eight billion dollars a year gets poured into the Hanford Reservation. 
So there's there's tons of technology, tons of opportunities, tons of stuff going on out there. And all these kids in the area are like, well, I've heard there's good jobs. So the college has a path to get them into those jobs. And so they asked me, hey, we, we need some help teaching one of these. And I started I teaching uh, like one night here, one night there. And then I took one whole class and then I took the next class. And now now I'm teaching a bunch like this quarter. I'm teaching three classes, which is the most I've taught. Uh, It's uh, it's a challenge juggling all that, but uh, making it do making do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and as you say, juggling, you said at the beginning that you can't you believe you can't have enough hobbies. And I listed a few of yours. I want to touch on one of them, which I think is pretty unique, and that's your writing hobby. Oh, okay. uh, I, and, and so you, um, one of the times that you and I had spoke, uh, spoken privately previous to this, you were working on writing some scripts for some things. And so, uh, how's that going? What, what are you writing? So, right. I, uh, the script we talked about back then I did finish and I did send it off to some, uh, uh, I don't know, ink something or other, the ink farm or whatever, these places where you can get movie scripts read. And it got a little bit of interest, but nobody, it was about a, a situation that happened on our submarine where we ended up leaving a sailor in Korea because he got arrested. And oh. it was this whole drama thing. And uh, But if you look at it from a production standpoint, Hollywood doesn't want to make a, another big submarine Navy movie where there might be some bad light cast on the Navy, right? Uh, there's this whole scandal out there called the uh, Leonard. Um, oh, that was uh, yeah, Fat Leonard. Fat yep. Leonard, the Fat Leonard scandal. Mm-hmm. My so uh, CEO was mentioned that um, specifically Ooh. in that, so I was fully oh. involved in Fat Leonard. <laughs> oh, ouch! Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you haven't, uh, that's worth an interesting read if you go to the Wikipedia page. Uh, so this was right in the middle of that time, and there was some, the reports from this sailor, after he finally got out and released, uh, there was a lot of corruption going on and bribery and, and some weird things he reported from uh, his time in Korea. And so I put this whole screenplay together about that. But of course, Hollywood's not going to make that. So... Oh, well. oh, but a unique experience that you wrote a screenplay after going through your master's in writing. I think that's interesting. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. I do a lot of short stories. I'm putting together a collection of short stories right now. Uh, my most recent story, I actually started this. So as we, as you know, uh, the, reader, the viewers might not know yet, I've got a prostate cancer. And so I just got diagnosed uh, back in June on June 27th. And within days of that, I was doing this kind of mental, holy crap. Because if you go to Google and and put in this, you know, my stage four Bravo, uh, aggressive, it's aggressive, it's metastasized already, it's spread to my spine. You put those things into Google, it doesn't give you very uh, no, positive no. outlooks. Mm-mm. Dr. And Google, like, you, will, you will die of a splinter. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, holy crap. If I've got a year, what am I going to do? What do I really want to do if I've got a year? And one of the things that came out of that uh, self-evaluation was write a story uh, about my experience with cancer. So I started a story called The Tumor. And I started it. It's a three-part story. And I did the first two parts before I uh, started my actual treatment, because there's a long time from diagnosis to treatment. I was officially diagnosed June 27th of this year, and I took my first pills for my first treatment on August 11th. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary wait too, with when they tell you it's aggressive and then they make you wait. That's not fun. So, and since we've now talked about the cancer, yeah, yeah. Uh, how did you, obviously, you know, we'll talk later about how people can listen to your uh, podcast series that you have, which is very, very informative about your journey. Um, but for our audience, tell us about that initial diagnosis, how that happened, how you found out, and oh. and let's go from there. So they put you in a room, they have you drop your pants, 
You're bending. Oh, not that. You're talking about like, how did I find out I had? <laughs> uh, I know about the test. Oh, us, us old guys. I don't know if Andy's had to have this yet. yet, but, but uh, yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've got the old uh, oil check. Yeah. Well, that's not even the diagnosis. That's still just uh, checking symptoms, right? Sure. The diagnosis is actually worse because it's a biopsy. They put these, mm. they take core samples from your prostate and they go in through the same outdoor Oh, and then boy. go through the wall into the prostate. And they take 12 core samples. Feels like you're getting stapled right in the center of your core. Um, but yeah, the reason what sent me to the doctor is I was, I'm heavy guy. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four. I'm really heavy. And I'm trying to get back on the bike, trying to lose some weight. And uh, I was just had some discomfort down there. And I was had a doctor visit coming up. So I mentioned it to the doctor visit. And she's like, well, let's do a PSA test. So she drew a PSA test and it came back uh, just a little above four. And uh, she's like, well, that could be a, uh, an infection or something. So she says, let's wait a little while. I'll give you, I'll put you in a, on an antibiotic. And so I went on an antibiotic for five weeks, ciproflaxin or something. And uh, came back in the sixth week, did another test and it came back six. And I was like, hmm. All right. Now what, doc? <laughs> She's like, well, I'm going to refer you to a urologist. And throughout that, that waiting time, things started to get more uncomfortable down there. Uh, and so I had a hard time sitting. Um, you know, I started to notice changes in uh, how hard it was to pee, uh, how often I was going, stuff like that. And uh, the urologist, he got me and he said, OK, well, let's do another PSA test. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> so we did another one and it came back even higher. It was in the upper mm -hmm. sixes. And he's like, all right, now it's time for the biopsy. And that's where they go in and they do the 12 core samples. We'll return to the podcast in just a moment. But first, Hometown Hero Outdoors would like to thank the following companies that support HHO and our mission. Relentless Defender Apparel and Gear. Silencer Central Suppressors. Best Defense, Armory, and Range in Forest Lake, Minnesota, and Tito's Handmade Vodka. We thank them for their support. Now, back to our podcast. What I, Looking back, what I found is those symptoms I was having, I was rationalizing as, well, I'm, I'm 50, at the time, 52 years old. I'm starting to get older. I'm starting to... my. I'm, at a, I'm a supervisor of training, so I'm more sedentary now than I've ever been. And so I'm sitting on my butt. I've put on some weight. Um, this is what's going to happen. This is what happens, and this is what it feels like. And so I didn't get checked out earlier. Um, and what the really sad thing about it, uh, looking back, is back in 2017, I had a really good friend there in Monticello, uh, he lived in Elk River, but we worked together at the Monticello plant. He passed away from prostate cancer. He found out when it was really late, and they went after it really super aggressively, but there was just no hope for him. And uh, all a bunch of us went and immediately got our PSAs tested. So PSA is prostate-specific antigens, and what that is is the blood tests. All it is, they draw some blood, and they check for these antigens in your blood. And it says that there's all that tells you is there's something going on with your prostate. Because if there's any trauma to your prostate, uh, can't, whether it's cancer or an infection or uh, you got kicked or you're riding a bike, that those levels go up. They release these antigens into your bloodstream. And so mine came back 1.59. Now, a normal male in their 40s at the time should have been 0.6 to 0.8. Um, but... Before 2019, the standard was if it's below 4.0, they just tell you you're within range and, you know, that's it. They don't tell you to monitor it. They don't tell you, hey, it's slightly elevated, so you should do this every year. They didn't tell me anything. So but, in 2017, you were possibly already slightly elevated. Yep. I likely okay. had this prostate cancer growing since mm. through 2017. Wow. And because the doctor said, well, it's less than four, you're good to go. And that's mm -hmm. what I want. One of the things I want to make sure biological males, 40 years or older, 
every year, every September, September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Go get your PSA tested because what matters is the trend. Some men have PSAs that are normally two, three, four. Even I know a guy in the prostate cancer support group on Facebook who's six. He, his, he doesn't have cancer. He's fine. And his PSA is just six point something. And so what's important is you do more than one test and you track that trend. And it's good to do that like every year, every September. And as soon as it starts going up, you get with the urologist, you check it. Now you're checking it every month and you're treating it before it breaks out of the prostate. Because what's happened since from 2017 to now is it's been growing, it's likely been growing, and eventually it just turned the corner and became aggressive. And that's where I started to have the symptoms. It broke out of the prostate. It formed a primary, another tumor on my spine, on my L1 vertebrae. And once that happens, the prognosis changes significantly. In fact, if you catch it while your PSA is low, while it's still contained in the prostate, it's almost 100% cure rate. Hmm. And once it breaks out of the prostate, it's your palliative, not curative. And that's scary. I forgot what question I was answering. I started babbling there for a bit. No, no, you're you're good. I wanted to make a comment that because you first told me about all this uh, going on, I believe in August initially, I had a a uh, doctor visit coming up to get reevaluated for my life insurance, and they did a PSA test, and that was the first thing I checked. Uh, and, and luckily, like I mentioned to you in a private, you know, conversation is that, you know, mine was like, you know, zero point like four or five, which is great. You know, it's really, really low and very, very happy to, to, to see that. But I tell you what, it was definitely top of mind, uh, after, after, you know, our conversation and, and listening to, you know, what you've been going through. Uh, and so that's, you know, definitely something that I've been preaching, uh, as well as you just mentioned that, you know, biological males above the age of 40 need to get it checked. Yep. Um, and, and especially, you know, and um, especially when you look at, um, as, as you also mentioned, that all men at some point, regardless of if they ever die of it or not, will probably have prostate cancer. And most men don't die of it, but will probably get it somehow. Yeah, uh, if you live you know, long before enough, they die. Get... Yeah. You know, and so I I find that very interesting. And so it, it does it does keep it more more top of mind. Yeah. Uh and so let's let's talk then about um so once you found out and as you said it metastasized into your L1, um what was that like? I mean, you were waiting for treatment. What was that period of time like where you were between the diagnosis and and a, and a treatment plan? Yeah, I was scared. I was uh, worried. I started having dialogue at work like, hey, I don't know what's going, what's going to happen. I don't know what this looks like in the coming months. Uh, I started looking at what is my option to take some time off. Fortunately, I've got a really good job here and they let me take a couple months off. I'm actually going back to work tomorrow morning after uh, two months off. I've been off since uh, August 28th, 7th, 6th, 5th, or 4th. August 24th was my last day. Wow. I'm going back tomorrow So because my radiation treatment's done. Um, and yeah, that, that time is that waiting really sucks because now it's now you know. Now you know you've got a tumor or multiple tumors in my case, growing, and right. it's aggressive. And they're, they, they're working on scheduling this, and they're scheduling that, and you're waiting for a call from this person and a call from that person, and nothing seems to be happening fast enough. I wanted to just go straight in the next day and get zapped. I just shoot me with some radiation. I don't care. I'll give me some chemo pills. I'll take all of it. Something. I wanted, I want to start dealing with this right away. And, uh, it was tough waiting. So I channeled and that's where that st short story I wrote the tumor. Mm. That's where that came from is I started channeling all that frustration and fear into, cause that's what I, that's why I write. I write for emotional reasons. It's an outlet for me. Uh, it's therapeutic. And so is 
in talking about this. So that's also where, so I was working on the short story. And then I also had this idea of, I'm going to start telling people. I want to let people know because when I turned 40, nobody handed me a book and said, here's, here's what you need to know about your prostate and how to, what to look for and what to check for and what it means. Yeah, there's, there's nothing out there. You know, my dad didn't know because he didn't experience any issues. I have an uncle that just went through prostate cancer two years ago. And it just, you know, people don't talk about it. It's an embarrassing thing to talk about for one. Sure. Um, fortunately, I was in the Navy on submarines, so I have no <laughs> boundaries. I'll tell anybody anything. <laughs> there you go. So, so I want to biopsy. I'll tell you. So I want to br- I want to bring that up as shine some light on what is possibly one of the elephants in the room. That was my first initial thought when I first found out you worked on a nuclear submarine. Mm. You also worked at a nuclear plant. And so I already know the answer to this question, but I want you to answer, is there a connection? So there's no way to know, right? Um, I don't think there is. We are really super safe. Uh, Andy will tell you, you probably wore a TLD. On so, the- I only had to wear one when I went into the, into the spaces, room. but yes, we were issued them if we were ever. And like they said, a commercial flight gives you more radiation than working yeah. next to the radi- or the reactor. So, yeah. So yeah. I'm not concerned that that was what my uh, source was. I did have a week I spent in um, Abu Dhabi that uh, apparently was near a burn pit when it was active. And there's a, uh, recent, that's uh, called the PACT Act. Uh, the VA just came out with the PACT Act, and they finally admitted that exposure to the air over in the Middle East uh, during certain times is uh, what they call a presumed condition uh, for some cancers. And so uh, maybe that's it. I don't know. And that's the scary things. I'll never know. Um, what I do know is we, my doctor's really good. My radiation oncologist says, Hey, let's find out that we can do this genetic test, find out number one, if it's genetic, because that changes our course of treatment. And then if it's not, we can still look at some genetic markers and maybe there's, there's some treatments that are better for some genetic markers. And so we did that. There was nothing special about my prostate cancer. It was just naturally occurring. It wasn't genetic. It's not family based. It's it's just, it just happened for some reason. So externally caused likely, but why? I don't know, but there's, we sure. do so much. We have, we take so many precautions at work at the nuclear power plant and in the Navy. Um, I got, uh, like Andy said, I got less radiation underway on a submarine than my family did sitting in a, you know, sitting in the house in Hawaii on volcanic lava, lava beds sure. and concrete houses on near asphalt roadways. All these things emit radio, uh, you know, they have radioactive decay from the minerals in them. Yep. And so now I, I don't think that was it, but I'll never know. What I did do mm-hmm. is I'm going to, you know, the right, what you should do is make the VA figure out if they can figure out what it was. Yeah. So I did submit a claim. Uh, I think the most telling thing is that week I spent in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so I had a little write up on that and we'll see, we'll see what they say. If they make a service connection grade, if they don't, then I'll just keep not knowing. (laughs) Now you mentioned that you just finished your treatments. So what's next? Well, sort of. So I'm on two different treatments. I was supposed to be on three. So when we did our the CT scans, they said you got it's in your prostate. It looks like it's broken out of your prostate in the local area, and you've got this tumor on the L1, and you have something showing up, something lit up on the scan on your 11th rib on your left side. I'm like, holy crap! So what we want to do is uh, androgen deprivation therapy (ADT) along with radiation therapy along with chemo. I'm like, so what's the timeline? Oh, all three, all at once. I'm like, holy crap! Um, so, but before my radiation oncologist, Dr. Brian Lowenda, fantastic doctor out here, he said, before we do all that, let's do one more scan. And it's a highly specialized, very expensive scan. Uh, the Navy covered, the VA covered it, fortunately, and it's called a PSMA PET scan. And if it doesn't show up on that, it's not cancer. And so my rib didn't light up. 
So it was just my L1 and just the prostate. And so he said, with that, let's skip the chemo. Let's just do the ADT and the radiation therapy. So I did 28 doses of radiation to my prostate. And then I did five doses of radiation to my spine. Uh, and then that was all while I'm doing ADT, this, this, these drugs. And it's two drugs. It's called Zytiga and um, Lupron. So I get a Lupron shot once every three months. I'm two months into my, I got my first shot on August 21st. And I took my first Zytiga pills on August 11th. And I do the pills every day. I do a thousand milligrams of Zytiga every day. And then every three months, I'll get this Lupron shot. And that's, I'll be on that for at least a year. I think that's the worst part of all the treatments. Radiation treatment, great. Uh, kill the cancer. Um, but the ADT, you know, because it's temporary. There's a start date, there's an end date, and you're done with it. ADT is different. Uh, this is, and it's a little emotional for me because, you know, when they give, uh, when they castrate, uh, chemically castrate like pedophiles and uh, rapists, uh, they give them two drugs. They give them Zytiga and Lupron. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, um, for them, it's permanent. They have to take it the rest of their life, except that eventually your body figures out how to avoid it. And so your body, uh, and so the reason you're doing those is prostate cancer is a hormone-fueled cancer. It feeds off of testosterone. So, if you know men who have, who have low testosterone, right, that's a thing where you feel fatigued and lethargic all the time. You don't have any energy, no motivation. Your mood goes through the floor. You just feel like garbage and don't feel like doing anything. And you feel like crying all the time. And that's what they're going for with this is they're trying to take my testosterone down to zero. Mm. And so uh, I'm on that. The, my PSA went from um, 10 at the last test to, uh, cause they did one right before I did the start of the treatment down to zero, down to four and then down to 0 0.8. And I won't get another test for about another three weeks, which is, I'm in that fear phase again. Like, I don't actually know if this radiation therapy worked. We're not going to do a scan and find out. All we're going to do is monitor my testosterone to make sure it stays at zero. And we're going to do that for another eight or 10 months. And then they're, they'll look at my blood work. And if I'm a candidate for coming off, they might wean me off of the ADT, see if my testosterone comes back up, and then watch my PSA levels. So as your testosterone comes back up, it should. And mine was 400 and something before all this started. So pretty healthy for 50-something years old. Not too bad. And it was uh, down to zero now. It's, it's undetectable. Wow. And so it should start going back up. And as it goes up, my PSA is going to come back up. But my PSA should come up to like 0 0.6, 0 0.8, maybe 1.0, and then stabilize. And as long as my testosterone rises to normal levels, well, almost normal, it'll never go back to completely normal. Um. My, but my, if my PSA stays low, then that's showing that there's no active cancer that's growing. As soon as I have active cancer that's growing, my PSA will start to rise again. And so I'm just going to be, the rest of my life will be monitoring, uh, holding my breath between PSA tests. Mm -hmm. So you obviously started a podcast and yeah. you wanted to talk about it. And I know part of the reason you wanted to talk about it was it was therapeutic for you. You want to tell us about your podcast, what, how you started that, why you started that, and, and how it's going and where people can catch it? Yeah. So I was, um, when the, the pandemic hit, I was teaching college, uh, classes at the college. And the pandemic hit, and then I had to start teaching from home. So I had to get a microphone, which I'm not using, but I had to get a microphone. I had to get a, a camera. Um, and a little setup. So I just set up a little something here in my craft room where I do my leather work and 5 million other hobbies. And so I had all this gear sitting around and this diagnosis hit and um, I was telling some people about it and I was, I was, it was kind of a roller coaster of how I felt each day. I'm dealing with it a lot better now, and I can just talk through it normally. But at the time, it was a little tough to talk through. 
And so I, you know, I thought, you know what, I just need to record this. I need to record what I'm, I need to sit down and just say it and record it. And I did. And I turned it into episode one. And uh, it's uh, Prostate Cancer Road to Recovery. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's on Spotify. It's on uh, iHeartRadio, Apple. It's on all the normal podcast stuff. Uh, but I primarily publish via YouTube. And I've done, you know, that first one's just kind of, uh, I got a lot of good engagement, a lot of good feedback. And a lot. I met a couple new people, um, Harry, Ian. Uh, from Australia, and he's two years ahead of me. He's been he's going mm-hmm. through this journey, and he just last month just eased off. Of, they kept kept him on the ADT t- for two years, so they wow. just eased him off last month, and so he's climbing back up, and he's holding his breath, hoping his PSA stays low. And so he and I start chatting, and then uh, I just met a bunch of good people through this, and so I did another episode, and then another, and then I. Okay, I've had this little plan on that. When I sat down and did that first one, I was like, if I'm going to do this, what, what is my goal? What am I going to try and talk, try and talk about? And I realized it was too much for one video. So that's why I decided to break it up into a podcast. There's still a bunch of uh, people I want to talk to. Um, my sister-in-law is, went through breast cancer several years ago. And prostate cancer and breast cancer are very similar because they're both hormone-fueled cancers. And so there's a lot of similarities in what you do and the treatment. And she was able to do a different treatment. She was able to do the surgery. And so I want to get her on there and do an interview. Uh, my brother had cancer on his neck. Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, I just had a, did an interview Friday, two days ago, with a friend from work who went through the prostate cancer 12 years ago. And then because of my diagnosis, he was like, you know what? I haven't checked my PSA levels. They, they removed his prostate 12 years ago, but that doesn't mean that you will always get a recurrence. So that's what sucks about prostate cancer is you get it and it's, you're cured, but you're cured for so long until you get it again. Cause all wow. it takes is one cell, one prostate cell, not scraped off of the bottom of your bladder or something. And sure enough, he went and got his PSA tested and it was slightly elevated again. So they waited, they did another test, and they waited, they did another test, and then they referred him to a urologist, and they're like, yep, you have cancer again. And so he's going through this again, and he wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been doing this. So a lot of people are getting their blood checked, a lot of people are getting their PSA tested. Most of them are good stories, like yours. Most of them are coming back, I'm getting lots of texts saying, hey, it came out at 0.8, hey, got it back at 0.6. Um, and then this one, Kel, you know, he, he, his came back higher. So he's going to deal with, uh, he's got to decide whether he can do radiation, whether he's going to do ADT, whether he's going to do both. But once again, he's facing this and it's, it just sucks. So I like doing this. I've done, uh, was he, I think his was episode nine or episode 10. I've done nine or 10 episodes so far. And we're going through a gambit of, uh, not just my treatment and my diagnosis, but what are the other options and why would somebody choose those? I've got an episode I'm trying to schedule with my doctor. I want to sit down with my radiation oncologist and get some right from the doctor info to for people to, you know, this is what, you know, these are the questions people are asking and have him answer those. I think that'll be good. So I for think sure. overall it's really good. No, it is good. And I've, I've been listening and I've been encouraging others to listen, especially people that are in our age group. Yeah. Um, you know, that it is important. There is a history of, of cancer in my family. I don't believe it was prostate cancer. Uh, I guess actually I had a grandfather who had prostate cancer, but that's not the cancer that killed him. Um, cause it did, uh, ended up, uh, in his colon, I believe. And so there was, other things going on there, but it, it does make it again, like I mentioned before, it makes it top of mind, especially for yeah. those of us who have crossed the, uh, the 50 yard line, let's just say. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I want to thank you, Jason, for, for what you're doing, uh, for bringing awareness, uh, to cancer. Uh, the last thing I want to, I want to ask you about is because obviously the mission of hometown hero outdoors is mental health awareness. And so tell me about the mental health aspect 
of what you're going through and what you're doing to uh to keep yourself in check yeah because um i'll tell you i wasn't always doing healthy things it's easy to just sit on the couch in the dark and think about it and keep thinking about it and that's not good that's not a good loop to be in right uh, I have to keep myself busy. I have to go after the things. And what sucks is once the therapy starts, the motivation to do anything just goes away. So I am constantly just forcing myself to do things that I know I used to enjoy that I'm now not enjoying as much. Mm. Um, but uh, when I do the podcasts and I'm meeting people and I'm seeing that it's helping, that brings some of that motivation back. I'm just fighting against, I'm basically fighting against a chemical issue, a chemical balance issue with my body where, you know, that testosterone gives us the energy and the drive and the motivation and, and helps us think clearly, helps our short-term memory. And all that's trashed and my body's trying to refigure out um, how to do things. And so you have to do things in order to allow your body to figure it out. I dug, a, I dug an old hobby out of the closet. I don't know how well this is going to show up. I used to make fishing poles. And so I I know you did a segment recently where uh, you had some guys yeah. on there doing some fishing yeah. poles. So I'm putting together this nine-foot uh, casting rig for my brother uh, nice. uh, to do some salmon fishing. There you go. And, uh, yeah, it'll be double guide foot, uh, double guide feet. And they'll have their base wrap. So it's got this base wrap underneath the guide feet. So when the pole flexes uh it's not scratching the graphite you know it's got a nice cushion there it's it'll be a high-end pole um i do uh, the writing of course i do a lot of writing i do leather work um of course i don't have it that's the one thing i'm trying to get back into that i'm having the hardest time going getting back into you can see a lot of my supplies and stuff here um but i do like little bags i've got sure just need something for I tie flies. Um, so uh, now you made me a really nice uh, knife sheath for my hunting knife. So, oh yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know I do little sheaths for knives, and this one's for a skiver. Um, I got a couple knife sheath project requests, so I'm trying to get back into doing that stuff. Um, one of the things I've I'm gonna do with the fishing pole is I bought a so light blue is the color of prostate cancer awareness. So I've got a light blue blank. Once I'm done with my brothers, I'm going to do this light blue um, fishing pole. And it's all blue. It's going to be everything. The thread's light blue. Everything on it is all prostate cancer uh, awareness pole. And then uh, at work every year, we have this, uh, we support the United Way auctions. And so I'm going to donate that and some leather goods uh, to uh, give away, to raise some money. Um and then if that goes, if I'm able to build that pole, I want to, what I want to try and do is build another one or two of those and maybe raffle them off to raise some money for prostate cancer, for uh, an actual prostate cancer charity. But we'll see. Sure. I don't know. That's, the thing is, you got to plan for things. you got to keep things um, yep. on your calendar. You have to have something to look forward to because sitting on the couch in the dark is not something to look forward to. And one of my friends reached out to me from Minnesota. He lives up there in Zimmerman. And he's like, he, uh, he's like, Stone, I used to go fishing with him up at Lake of the Woods every May. And he's like, Stone, you're going fishing with me. It's like, I don't know if I'm going to be. He's said, like, I don't want to hear it. You're going fishing in May. I'm like, yeah. all right. So I guess I'm coming back out to Minnesota in May. All right. Well, I expect to see you when you get here. <laughs> you, will. <laughs> you will. That's a good well, friend right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, it is. We're rolling up around an hour here, and so uh, we're going to start wrapping it up. And as uh, I listen to the Mike Rowe podcast, he always says this is when he lands the plane. I like that analogy. Um, and so, uh, Andy, do you have any uh, last uh, questions or last words uh, as we as we wrap up tonight? No, I, I Phil, I, I just want to repeat your sentiment to Jason. Like, thank you for what you're doing and getting this awareness out there. I don't, I, again, I, I'm only 34, but I'm getting close to that time when it's time for the oil check and all the PSA talk. And I don't know anything about it. And I don't know if I would be told about it. So I appreciate you spreading that awareness to me and then to your followers and the people you're meeting. So 
um, keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome work. Thank you. Thank you very much. It turns out I've got a YouTube channel you can watch to learn all you want. There we go. Um, <laughs> next subscriber yes, right here. Yeah. Jason, any any final words and you want to pitch your uh, podcast again or any other way uh, people yeah, can get a hold of you? If you're a biological male, 50 or 40 year old or even, uh, go get your PSA checked. Next time you check with your doctor, say, hey, I just want my PSA checked and then trend it at least every year. That's, that's important, hugely important. It would save so many lives if you just did that once a year. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you, Andy. And uh, from all of us here at Hometown Hero Outdoors, uh, just a reminder again, we are here for mental health awareness. If you are struggling in any way, we have members that are assist trained uh, in applied suicide prevention training. And you can call anyone uh, at any time. If you are unable to do that, the national hotline, you can call, uh, call or text 988 uh, for uh, suicide awareness. And so with that, I am Phil Ewert, along with Andy Kraft and Jason Stone. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. See y'all. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to the Hometown Hero Outdoors podcast. For more information, visit our website at hometownherooutdoors.org.